Please stand and turn with me in your Bibles. I'm going to call an audible here. The New Testament reading is going to be Mark chapter 1, not what you see anywhere in print. I apologize for that. But we're going to have the New Testament reading from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verses 40 through 45. Okay, this is early in the ministry of Jesus. And in verse 40, it says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Amen. Let's turn now to Haggai. We're going to finish the book today with Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests, about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches it with his and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, "No." Then Haggai said, "If someone who is unclean by contact with the dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, It does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, 
I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Amen. You may be seated. I think some of you have heard this story from Annie already. Uh, we, we enjoyed telling it after it happened. Um, it wasn't very long ago. There was a, a, a very, very rainy day uh, at our house where our kids decided they wanted to go outside and play in the rain. Uh, this was several weeks ago when it was still warm out, not, not like chilly like today. And so uh, they go outside, they're having a nice time, and eventually they discover this spot near the bottom of our front yard where there's kind of a dip and... Um, it rained pretty hard, and so there was standing water there, at least at least like an inch of water, because it had been a downpour. And so they decided it'd be fun to uh, splash around in it, and then to start rolling around. And you remember this, girls? It got really, really dirty, really muddy. And they had a great time. It was terrific. Um, and then it was time to come inside. And so you can imagine uh, they, they were not just wet; they were muddy, all over muddy. And you can imagine then how careful Annie was about not letting them just track mud all over the house, because that would not have been good. It would have been a lot of work to clean up, right? And um, so if, if she had just let them come inside with their coat and their hats and their boots and tramp around everywhere, you can imagine what would have happened. Now, you could imagine, Annie could have had an, an idea. She could have said, uh, well, their boots are muddy and their coats and their hands and their faces are muddy, but the carpet's clean and the couch is clean, so if I just let them walk all over the living room and roll around on the couches, then they'll get clean too because they walked on the clean carpet and rolled on the clean couch. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. Andy would never do that, thankfully. Um, because what would you get? What you would get is muddy kids and a muddy living room. The mud would have gotten everywhere, and yet the kids still wouldn't be any better off. Okay. It's kind of funny. So you keep that mental image in mind, scary as it is. Uh, you keep that mental image in mind as we think about Haggai's message for Israel in the passage we just read. Mud is a little bit easier for us to get our minds around than like ceremonial uncleanness, but it's a very similar point that he's making. Let me give you an outline for tonight uh, first, and then we'll get started. So the first point is the stain we can't remove, verses 10 to 14. The stain we can't remove. Second is going to be the blessing we don't deserve, verses 15 to 19. The blessing we don't deserve. And then third, the king the Lord has chosen. Verses 20 to 23, the king the Lord has chosen. 
All right, so first, the stain we can't remove. Uh, Last time, remember Haggai was preaching in what we would call the month of October, like like this month, uh, right at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. He was preaching then uh, when the renewed construction work on the new temple had been underway for about a month at that point. In tonight's passage, we fast forward two more months, and so we're what we would call the month of December. And so uh, these returned Israelites have been working on the temple project for a while now, a couple more months, and and you might think that they would expect at this point from the prophet a kind of pat on the back. Attaboy, good job being obedient, good job working hard at this mission the Lord gave you. You're doing great. Keep up the good work. That's what they would want to hear at this point from the prophet, right? Surprisingly, though, that is not at all the tone of Haggai's message, at least at first. He is going to encourage them later on in the passage. But to encourage them properly for the right reasons, he first needs to kind of knock down some wrong reasons that they might have been starting to feel kind of pleased with themselves. Just look at us building the temple. Aren't we great? Look at this hard work we're doing, how sacrificial we're being. Aren't we doing a good job serving God? I wonder if you've ever ever had that feeling kind of start to come up in your heart when you've, when you've done something that you thought was particularly worthwhile, maybe at church or for somebody who needed help. You, have to get, you get that warm glow of self-satisfaction. That was, that was pretty great what I just did. I feel pretty good about myself. It's that kind of, kind of smugness, that kind of self-satisfied, self-righteous attitude. It's a spiritual disease. The Bible is warning us against all the time. And here at the beginning of this passage, it's like Haggai the prophet is taking a little pin and popping that bubble, (laughs) bursting that balloon. And the people, you can imagine thinking, ow, Haggai, what would you do that for? I was feeling good about myself for once. And Haggai's here to say, yeah, but you were feeling good about yourself for completely the wrong reasons. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Ask the priests about the law. Now, this um, was part of the priest's job. The priests not only were to offer sacrifices, they also had a teaching job. They were supposed to be law teachers. They were supposed to understand what God's law required and then be able to explain it to God's people. They were kind of like compliance officers. Let me help you understand the rules and show you the right way to make sure that you're keeping them properly. That was one of the ways that they served the people and helped keep the community from uh, covenant violations that would bring judgment on them. And so the Lord says, go to the priests and ask them this question. Um, If you're carrying something holy... Um, kind of like fold it up in your robe to carry it around. You can imagine that you might like take an apron, like put food in it or something. It would be some, something along those lines. You're carrying the food in your robe, and it's holy food, this consecrated food, maybe from a sacrifice or something. You're carrying it around, and that robe that you're wearing that has the holy food inside it touches something else that's not holy, that's not consecrated. Does that common object that, that touched your robe suddenly become holy just because it came in contact with the holy thing that you're carrying? Interesting question. 
What do you think, priests? And the answer, they get it right. The answer is no. No. An unholy thing touching a holy thing doesn't make it holy. Holiness doesn't get passed that way just through touch of a holy thing with a common thing. Okay. So then Haggai goes on and asks, well, let me ask you another question. What about something ceremonially unclean? You have to understand here we're, we're, we're in the universe of like the book of Leviticus with all these rules about what could make something ritually clean or unclean. These, rule, uh, or unclean, these rules that we no longer follow under the New Covenant but were very important to the Old Testament system of symbolizing that holiness of the people of God to keep them separate from unclean things. And um, one of the um, uh, main ways you could become unclean was through touching a dead body. This is a big way you could become unclean. You touch a dead body, that makes you unclean, then you have to go through certain ritual procedures to become ritually clean again. And so Haggai says, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, so they're unclean, what if they touch something else? Does that thing they touch become unclean? And the priests say, yes, it does. Holiness does not get transmitted through touch, but uncleanness does get transmitted through touch. Uncleanness is like uh, you attach a paperclip to a magnet. That paperclip becomes magnetic and it can pick up another paperclip. Okay? So it's easy to transmit uncleanness. Uncleanness passes from one object to another, from one person to another in t- uh, through touch in a way that cleanness or holiness doesn't. It's kind of a one-way street. And, of course, it's very much like regular life, which is why I started with the, the story from, from our family a few weeks ago. Um, I like the way Alec Matir put it in his commentary. He said, this, this makes it really, really plain and simple. If you touch something with a dirty hand, you will leave a dirty mark. But if you touch something with a clean hand, you will not leave a clean mark. You understand this? Instead, what's going to happen? Your clean hand is going to get on it whatever was on that surface that you touched. Okay. So what does all this have to do with with anything? What does all this have to do with the returned exiles rebuilding the temple in particular? Well, the Lord explains himself in verse 14. He says, so it is with this people. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. What they offer there is unclean. Okay, now there are a couple of ways possibly to take this. Uh, one of them, some commentators go this way, is to say, <clears throat> well, Haggai is saying Israel cannot become clean until they build the temple. And as long as they didn't build the temple, they had no way to deal with their uncleanness. The temple was the place that God had provided to take care of the problem of uncleanness, and as long as they put off building it, there was no way to deal with that uncleanness problem. They, and so the problem here, uh, back from chapter 1, you remember, the point was that Israel was being complacent. They had, they had been showing that they were more interested in building their own houses and establishing their own comfort uh, and luxury than they were in building this symbol of God's presence with them. And what that showed was that they didn't take seriously enough their need for what the temple represented. 
problems, God's presence among them, God's provision of atonement, of cleansing, the the solution to the problem of sin. And so it's possible here that Haggai is sort of looking back and reviewing, repeating that point from chapter 1. Looking back and saying, listen, keep doing what you're doing. Keep building the temple because remember, you can't be clean before God without this pathway to cleansing that God has provided. You need the temple. Keep making that your priority so that God can cleanse you. If that's the case, then the next section would be implying, look, now that you have recommitted yourself to building the temple, um, now the Lord is going to lift the covenant curses that your spiritual dirtiness has brought on, and he's going to start blessing you instead. He's going to bless you on the basis of what this temple under construction represents. Okay, so that's one way of kind of understanding the prophet's meaning here. I think, though, that the message may be go another layer low, uh, another layer deeper than that, though. So let me suggest this. Rather than saying you can't be clean unless you build the temple, and maybe the Lord is saying something even more drastic here. This point. Even building the temple isn't going to make you clean. Even building the temple isn't going to make you clean. Building a holy building won't cleanse an unholy people. In other words, don't think that just building the temple is what you need to be clean before God. That if you just do this action of building this structure, that's going to make you clean. You can build this place. You can work really hard on it. You can consecrate it. But if that's all you do, if that's all that takes place, the temple is not going to make you clean. Guess what's going to happen? All this work you're doing is not going to make you clean. Rather, it's the other way around. It's much more likely. It's much more likely that your uncleanness, your sin, your corruption is going to defile the work that you're doing on the temple. Remember, it's a one-way street. Muddy kids play in a clean living room. The kids don't get clean. The living room gets muddy. Sinners build a temple for God now. The temple doesn't make the sinners clean. But their sin can make that temple an unholy place. That's what happened to the first temple. They got destroyed because it had been defiled by the people's rebellion. In other words, this is the broader spiritual point. What you do for God, quote-unquote, doesn't have the power to make you clean in God's sight. What you do for God can never have power to make you clean in his sight. In fact, it's the other way around. It's your sin. Your sin stains and corrupts even the best things you could ever try to do for God. Remember how Isaiah puts this, one of his prophecies. He, he, he describes how even our attempts to do righteous things, when God looks at those attempts, because of the sin in other parts of our lives, that those efforts at righteousness are as worthless as filthy rags. They're polluted, so polluted by our sin that we can't get rid of on our own. We don't have the power to wash them clean. In other words, there's no making up for sin by trying to balance it out with good works over here. Maybe if I, maybe I can do enough good to wipe out the stain of the bad over here. That's, it doesn't work that way. 
Because sin is sticky. Sin is sticky. We cannot wash it off ourselves. It clings to us, and it clings, moreover, to everything we touch, like muddy feet walking over a clean carpet. Sin is sticky. And so these people's sacrifices couldn't make them clean before God. Why? Because their sin made their sacrifices unclean. Their hard work building the temple couldn't make them clean before God. Why? Because their sin was going to make that temple unclean if it was only up to them and their ability to build it. That temple would be unclean because it had been built by sinful people. To wash away the crimson stain, grace, grace alone availeth, the hymn says. Our works, alas, are all in vain. In much the best life faileth. No man can glory in thy sight. All must alike confess thy might and live alone by mercy. And live alone by mercy. And it is the mercy of God then that we find next in verses 15 to 19. It's kind of a jarring corner that Haggai turns here. It's kind of like a non sequitur. Wait a second, how did you get there from here? Because verse 15 doesn't seem to flow from verse 14. Verse 14 has just gotten to saying, everything about these people is unclean. And everything they touch is unclean. Even their offerings are unclean. The offerings they're supposed to be cleansing them, even those offerings are unclean. And so in verse 15, you'd expect the conclusion to be some kind of message of judgment. These people are unclean. Everything they touch is unclean. So now then, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to carry you into exile again. Maybe that's what it feels like is, is coming next. But that's not what it says. That's not what God says next. Verse 14. These people are unclean. Everything they touch is unclean. Even their offerings unclean. Now then, consider. From this day on, I'm going to bless you. You're unclean. Now, from this day on, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make this construction of this temple building the beginning of a new season of blessing and flourishing for you that you do not deserve. Nothing could be clearer than that but I intend to give you this season of blessing and flourishing out of my free grace as you learn to live alone by mercy. Okay, now to understand the details of the second section, that's the, that's the big picture. Then we get down into the details. Um, it helps to know a little bit about the climate and agriculture of Israel. 
Um, here in the U.S., you think about the agricultural cycle, farmers will usually plant their crops in the spring and harvest them in the fall, right? And then during the summer, they're kind of growing and there's a little bit of a downtime. <clears throat> in ancient Israel, of course, the geography is different, the climate's different. And so the agricultural schedule was also different because of where the rainy seasons fell and things like this. Um, and so in Israel, December for them, when this prophecy was given, was kind of like June for us, where the crops have all been planted, but they're not going to be harvested yet for a couple more months. Okay, so they're just starting to grow, maybe, or, or, or maybe they haven't even come up yet. And because of that, so the, the, the seed has been sown, but it's just barely started to grow. It's hard to say then what kind of harvest they're going to have when harvest time comes. And you remember from chapter 1, the last harvest was very disappointing. Israel has recently been experiencing some very hard times. Remember from chapter 1 how Haggai said, you have sown much, but harvested little. And the Lord told them in chapter 1, that's not a coincidence. This has happened because you are under covenant discipline. Because you have been neglecting this core covenant responsibility to build the Lord's house. Okay. So at this point, it's December, and the farmers around Jerusalem, they've just planted their crops again. And now they're having to wait and see what kind of harvest are we going to get this year? And how is it going to compare to last year? And God says, now then consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, well, there were but 20. In other words, it seemed like there was always less than there was supposed to be. We thought there was going to be a lot, and actually there's only a little. Remember that imagery from chapter 1 of a, of a bag with holes in it. You put the money in, and it falls out the bottom. You think, well, where, how, where did it all go? Sometimes you might look in the pantry and think, where did all the food go? Why is it so empty all of a sudden? Except it was that way for the whole nation, and you couldn't just go to the grocery store to buy more because there, there was none there to buy. There were shortages of everything. I struck you, God says, and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. But now things are going to be different. Now, what's happened? Now the people have turned to the Lord. Now the people have started to listen to the prophets. Now they are re-engaging with this work of building the temple. But the point here is not that it's that work that's going to earn the blessing that's about to come. This is not a transaction here where God says, well, you give me some work and I'll give you some blessing. No, what's going to bring blessing now is that the people have turned to God. They have turned to the Lord. The renewed construction work on the temple, then, is going to serve as kind of a symbolic turning point. This is the point that I want you to measure from, God is saying. Now that you have turned to me, and that's, that's being borne out in your actions, now consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, today, since, mark this down, circle it on your calendar, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is seed yet in the barn? Well, no, seed is not yet in the barn because they've just sown it into the ground, right? They've just planted it, and now they're waiting for it to grow, and they don't know what's going to happen this year. 
And the Lord says, well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on, I will bless you. I will bless you even though you are unclean. I will bless you even though your sin sticks to everything you touch. I know you cannot cleanse yourself. I know that your work, even your temple building work, can never make up for, can never cleanse away the wrong that you've done. But I'm going to bless you anyway. I'm going to make the way for you sinners, unclean sinners, to experience a blessing that you do not deserve. Now, not every passage in Scripture tells the whole story. Haggai here is saying that God is going to bless these unclean people who don't deserve it. He does not spell out how that can be. Look to other parts of the Scripture to spell that out for us through the Gospel. But it is striking, I think, very striking, that the last prophecy Haggai gives points so clearly forward beyond itself, leans forward to anticipate a future hope. A future hope that happens to coincide with the way God has provided for sinners to experience blessing. It's through Christ, of course. It's through Jesus Christ that God is going to make the way for unclean sinners to experience the undeserved blessings of God that they could never earn, And so, it's no accident that it is to Christ that Haggai points us in the closing verses of this book. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, the same day as the other prophecy. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, he says. Now remember, Zerubbabel was a descendant of David. He's in that royal bloodline of King David. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, the last king before the exile. Or Jeconiah, he's also called. And so you can imagine the weight of kind of hope and expectation that lay on this man, this governor of Judah, as as a leader for the people coming out of the exile. And here God says to him, Zerubbabel, I'm about to shake the kingdoms of the earth and the earth and to overthrow the throne, thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. In other words, all these powerful countries that you see around Judah right now, this, this empire of the Persians that's currently dominating them, that power of those nations is not going to last forever. God is going to shake those nations. He's going to bring a great change in the world. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So what the Lord is doing here is a couple of things. First of all, he's encouraging Zerubbabel personally in his position of leadership for Judah right now. Even though right now he is not wearing a crown He's not on a throne, and in his own lifetime, he he never is going to be. He's never going to be crowned king himself. He's never going to be a king Zerubbabel. Nonetheless, God is reassuring him, you are chosen by God. As God's representative, the leader of God's spiritual kingdom, the leader of the covenant people, 
leader of this kingdom of God that is going to endure. It's going to endure stubbornly through all of the change and all of the upheaval of the geopolitical scene that's going to come down the pike through the years. But uh, we have to think, as you see the kind of end time, last days language that's being used here, that what Haggai is prophesying here is something much bigger than merely about Zerubbabel as an individual. Zerubbabel is this official person who has this significance as a member of the royal bloodline of David. And that's the bigger point here. This is about what Zerubbabel stands for as the heir of David's throne. And that's why there's this this last day's language Haggai's using here. On that day, he says, the day when I shake the heavens and the earth. So the Lord, through Haggai, is, is pointing us through Zerubbabel, past Zerubbabel, to Zerubbabel's greater son, King Jesus. The one who would inherit that throne, who is indeed the chosen king, the signet ring of God the Father. What does the signet ring do? It carries the, the presence and the authority and the power of a king to wherever that message is sent. It's stamped with that signet ring. That's what Jesus is for the people of God, sent from the Father to reveal what the Father is like to us and to carry into the world all of the Father's presence and authority and power and grace and truth to the people of God. That's who Jesus is. Isn't it amazing to consider then, taking this passage all together, everything Haggai said on that day, that 24th day of the month, Jesus is also the key to God's plan for how unclean sinners can get blessing instead of judgment from God. Whatever we touch, we get our sin all over it. And we can't wash away that crimson stain. But for Jesus, it was different. For Jesus, it was different. Remember earlier from Mark chapter 1. Remember the day that leper came to Jesus and said, if you will, you can make me clean. Nothing except maybe a dead body. Nothing in the Old Testament was so unclean, so persistently unclean as the disease of leprosy. It continued to be treated that way in the first century. You remember what Jesus did in that moment? It was remarkable. Something no other Jew of his day would have done. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched that man. He touched him. Any other person who had done that, that uncleanness, that ritual uncleanness of that leprosy would have been transmitted instantly from that leper to that person. And probably the disease itself, for that matter. The important thing here is the ritual uncleanness, though. But what happened when Jesus touched him? He touched him and he said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he was made clean. You see what's happening there? That Jesus was so clean. That when he touched that unclean man, the uncleanness did not flow from that leprous man to Jesus. 
Any other person, that's exactly what would have happened, but not Jesus. Jesus was so clean, and his cleanness, his holiness was so powerful that it flowed from him to that unclean man. And his disease, his defilement were gone. They vanished in an instant. You see, the cleanness of Jesus is different. It is the cleanness of Jesus alone that can flow outwards from him to sinners and cleanse us when he touches us instead of the other way around. It's true that on the cross, of course, he bore our uncleanness. He bore our sin, our condemnation. But what became of it? Where is it now? It's gone. Jesus dealt with it once and for all. It is no more. You will never find it again. To wash away the crimson stain. Grace, grace alone availeth. Our works, alas, are all in vain, in much the best life faileth. Or as that other great hymn says, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How precious is that flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount, I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash unclean sinners clean. Jesus, God's chosen King and our Savior. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, this is a difficult and rather intricate passage that you set before us tonight. Not super easy to understand. And so we ask that you would um, teach us from it, help us to think carefully about what it has said, take it to heart. But Lord, in spite of all the intricacies and difficulties of it, we ask that you would help us to see with crystal clarity that great, sovereign, powerful holiness and cleanness of Jesus that has the power to wash us from our sin and restore us to fellowship with you. We're so thankful for him, your chosen king and our savior. We ask all of this in his name. Amen.